Our text for this afternoon is Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. So we're here almost at the end of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. Tim is going to wrap up our series next week, and then we'll launch into Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus. Personally, for this text, this message, my greatest fear is that some listening may already be desensitized to hearing the word of Christ. Maybe some of us have spent so long in church hearing the words, nodding our heads in external agreement to what's being taught, even in our hearts believing what we hear, but nothing ever changes that brings us to repentance and obedience. The message that you hear on Sunday never bleeds over into your Monday, perhaps, with a changed life. Maybe some of you feel that describes you today, or maybe not. But in either case, I urge you, I, I plead with you, to please stay alert, stay awake. Do what you need to even to, to stand up and stand in the back, or ask your spouse or one of your kids to pinch you. But please give your attention to Jesus' words today. Hear this as one dying man to another. We need, we need this word from God. This short parable for you could be the difference between life and death. In case you think I'm being dramatic, let's read together this text from Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. This This is the word of the Lord. Jesus is speaking. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The only safe and secure place for a person is following Jesus in obedience. I'll say that again later, but let me repeat that now. The only safe and secure place for a person is following Jesus in obedience. Over recent weeks, we've seen these true dichotomies that Christ draws. There are two paths. There are two trees, two professions. And this week, we see there are two builders building on two different building surfaces, Jesus is talking to people who are under his teaching from day to day. At least they were hearing this sermon and probably more. And he's pointing out how there are very different ways to respond to teaching. And they have two very, very different outcomes. Has anyone noticed how everything seems to be about outcomes nowadays? That those that word outcomes comes up a lot. Maybe it's a Maybe it's a long-term trend and I just missed it. I'm late to a lot of things. But somehow I'm picking up on this now. There's outcome-based education. 
not just passing a student through grades in school, but making sure they're learning important stuff to have the right tools later in life so the outcome of an education is important. Or I've heard lately a lot of people talking about, in the medical field, positive outcomes, referring to what we desire a treatment would result in for a patient. But Jesus, I think we could say, was the original in outcome-based philosophy. Here we see he's pointing to two very different outcomes. One outcome is of a house that stands through the storm of, of safety, stability. The other outcome is of utter destruction. And today we distinguish between these outcomes through Christ's use of a parable. Jesus followed a pattern usually when he taught with a parable. He would usually tell the parable, which is just like an extended simile. It's drawing a comparison, but through a story form. And he would usually tell the parable first, and then often he would give a little bit of explanation. So in the parable, this meant this, this meant this. And then he would sometimes even finish by applying it to lives. And I'm going to follow a similar model today. In today's text, we have the only parable Christ used during this Sermon on the Mount. I'll start by telling the story. Then I'm going to try to explain the story based on this and other places in Scripture. And then the bulk of the message, my intent is the bulk of the message is going to be application. What do we do with this? How is this going to change our lives this week? So first of all, let's start by just hearing the parable. The story is a simple one. We have two sets of builders constructing homes that they're going to live in. These builders have many things in common. In fact, they have more in common than they have different. They both need materials. They both need plans. They both need to decide where to set their house, which direction it will face. Importing it into our day, one of them maybe goes to Lowe's, another to Home Depot, pick up a good supply of lumber, of nails, appropriate tools, and that's pretty much where I'm going to stop in describing how to build a house because there's people in here who could call me on that. So you then do stuff, house building type of stuff. So basically these two builders are both exerting physical, mental effort to put this home together. The titles of wise and foolish are given by the teller of the story. It's not like they have labels on their forehead that says this is the wise builder. Watch him. He's doing all kinds of stupid stuff. No, it really comes out in the choice that they make of where to build. We don't really see one of them using inferior building materials, cutting corners in the electrical work. A casual observer would see both of them working hard toward building a nice house that will last. And really, once the houses are built, I think they would have been indistinguishable from each other. Maybe one's red, one's blue. On opposite sides of the street, they look pretty much the same. This is a a cookie-cutter kind of neighborhood. But, and this is the essential variation, this is is where all, all the difference is made. They make two different decisions when it comes to where to build their house. One deliberately seeks out a sturdy location, a place where he can put down a solid foundation into the bedrock on which his home will be anchored in case the weather turns someday. The other, I don't think he went looking for sand. He wasn't like, ooh, I like that sandy spot over there. Let's put our house on the sand. That looks nice and stable. No, I just think he didn't think it was important. He didn't see the difference. Maybe the view was better. 
He ignores the warnings that there's going to be future storms. Because while he's building, maybe it's sunny, it's clear. So the key difference is all under the surface based on this critical decision made in the early stage of building. But a very big critical difference. So initially, I mistakenly pictured this house on the sand. And maybe you are too, picturing a house on the sand and you're picturing it out on some sandbar or maybe on the beach and the waves are kind of lapping up. Like, yeah, that's not a good idea. You don't just put a house there. But that's not really, I don't think, what Christ's parable was about. Remember, Christ was teaching in Palestine. And in Palestine, if you can picture it, anyone ever been to the Holy Land, to Palestine? Yes, I see that hand. Um, I actually haven't. But reading through some materials, it was pretty clear that they have a lot of very dry, rugged terrain. So picture instead this dry hillside, a very um, rugged place, I already said that, and picture it kind of zigzagged with these shallow ravines kind of going through the hill. In a rainstorm, these dry ravines quickly become raging rivers, washing away anything and everything in their paths in a matter of minutes sometimes taking out a big chunk of the countryside with them. Here's one person's description. Houses built within reach of these sudden deluges, especially those founded on sand or other unreliable foundation, cannot stand before them. The rising stream shakes a house to its foundation and erodes away its base until it falls. Rocks are common there, so it's not hard to find a solid foundation. So, picture in your mind instead of a house you know kind of on a beach with waves coming up against it it's in a dry place it looks maybe externally like a safe place to put a house but without a foundation the river is going to come with the rain and wash that house away so the outcomes are the final part of this parable these two similar houses built on different foundations have two very different outcomes The one built with planning for the storm ends up on the solid foundation of rock. And when the storm comes, it stands through the worst that can be thrown at it. Notice the storm doesn't just talk about rain. It talks about rain coming down on the roof. And then it talks about the the flood level rising. So there's river kind of beating against the foundation, the base of the house. And then on top of that, there's wind kind of pushing on the walls, applying this pressure. So the one built only for fair weather falls in this storm. Pretty much every English translation captures the great tragedy of this fall. It's not that the house just kind of leans a little bit. It's not that the foundation cracks. No, this, this house is toppled from its position on the country, on the hillside. I picture it being crushed on rocks below. This is a great fall, a devastating fall, a total destruction of everything the builder had put into this home. The difference between safety and destruction, security and collapse, all came down to what the house was founded on. So now that we're in Christ's parable, we understand the basic plot of the parable, I hope. Let's break it down from a little bit different angle. And to do that, can I have a volunteer or two to come up here? Volunteers, yes, people are not eager. Yes, Brian. 
the man that has been to Palestine. I'm sure you'll be very helpful with this. How about anyone under the age of 18? (laughs) The kids are looking at their parents like, no, I'm not doing this. No way. Okay. I guess Brian and I will do it. Oh, okay, TJ. What we're going to do, and actually I hope at least one of you know this, I asked on the city for people to learn the words and motions to the wise man and the foolish man. Do either of you know this song? Why'd you volunteer? Oh, I guess I didn't tell you what you're coming up here for. Okay, you can go sit down. Does anyone know the song that would be willing to come up here and actually show us the motions? Or you can stay up here if you want. Anyone? Maybe we're in the wrong era. Does it, Tim knows it. Tim, would you be willing to come up here? All the elders up here? <laughs> okay. So it starts, it starts with building. Okay, you got to have your hands out of your pockets. The wise man built... You can join us if you want. Does anyone know it? The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Rains came tumbling down. I see a few people joining in. The rains came down and the floods came up. See, people are waking up now. And the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. You want to do the next one? Okay, you can go sit down. (laughs) <laughs> so the next, the next verse, I think most of us know this. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And then it goes through. We, we probably don't need to repeat all the verses. Everything's the same. Yes, thank you. And the house on the sand went. I think we say splat. I think splat. Is that the right word? So that's, you know, looking at it from a little bit. It's probably catching the artists in the room, the musicians. Like These two houses built on two different materials, two very different endings. Christ has a reason for telling this story, though. It wasn't just to interest people with a story. My reason for having us sing the song isn't just to interest us with a clever story. So let's explain it. Matthew actually doesn't record an explanation. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with Christ telling this story. And perhaps based on the context, Matthew thought this might be self-explanatory. Maybe enough crowds had shown up that Jesus was going to privately explain this to his disciples later. He often used parables as a way to, to only teach the people that wanted to learn, not just the crowds that were along for the miracles. But in any regard, let's look at the major aspects of this parable, this story, and how they apply to our lives we'll cover at the end. So who are the builders? To answer this, I think it's best to step just before he starts the parable. And what does he say? What does he say he's comparing? Beginning of verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, the one who obeys the words, the one who acts on the words, And again, at the start of verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So what I think Jesus is doing 
is dividing the Christian community. These are all people that are hearing Christ's words. The teaching of Christ is washing over both builders equally, it appears. So it's a Christian community, and he's dividing them into two groups, the hearers that obey and the hearers that do not obey. So he's not talking about people who don't hear the teaching, but those who are familiar with the teaching, enough to know what's expected of those who follow Christ. And we'll come to this again in application, but which group do you think you fall into? Are you a hearer that obeys or a hearer that does not obey? The fact that you're in church and so hearing Jesus' teaching this afternoon basically places you into one of these two categories. In this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've attempted to be clear as to what Jesus is saying, what demands he is making on true disciples. Disciples being those who are poor in spirit, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are countercultural people in the way they make peace with others. They're distinct in their lifestyle in that they are salt and light to the world around them. They recognize that Christ is the one that fulfills the law completely while at the same time demanding a righteousness from the heart. He is the one that commands more than external change, but an internal heart change for areas like anger, lust, divorce, lying, retaliation, loving our neighbors and our enemies alike. Jesus showed us how to do good deeds like giving and praying and fasting and how those can also be done hypocritically for earthly recognition. Jesus showed us how materialism and anxiety and criticism come from idolatry and the love of self. These are all areas included in Christ's teaching, all areas that demand our obedience as those who have heard them. Because simply knowing is not enough. You see, both groups of people here have the same theological information. They probably read the same Christian books, hear the same sermons, but only one is said to obey. So that's the builders, those who hear the word of God, and one of the builders is an obedient. So what are the houses? I think it's pretty clear that the houses being built are life itself. The builders putting time and hard work into putting up their houses. So that could be the choices we all make about how we spend our day. The choices we make regarding what relationships we'll enter into. What we're going to do for education. The jobs we're going to work at. What we eat. How we take care of our bodies. These are all choices we make every day. Some of them big. Some of them seemingly small. But ultimately put together These are the houses that we are building. The ultimate choice is what we will build our lives on, what that foundation will be. Is it things that we think will make us happy, things that will make our lives easier, or do we build thinking that we need something solid that's proven to last? What are the storms? This is probably the aspect of the parable that's the most controversial. And I'm not going to get into the controversy. I don't think it's unimportant, but I don't think it's the focus of what we need to learn from today's text. 
I'll just talk about the two major positions of what the storms are. Some say there's only one storm. There's a storm at the end, and it's the final judgment. So everyone is going to build their life on something, and at the end we'll find out by this final storm what they built their life on and whether it lasts. The other position says that the storms are all the trials, all the difficulties, all the hardships in life that reveal the reality of what our lives are built on. That when something difficult happens to us, it demonstrates, it reveals, am I building on something firm, something solid? And ultimately, those storms are all in anticipation, this position would say, of this final judgment, of this greatest of storms. And kind of based on the context in Christ's other teachings, I honestly went back and forth this week. I think where I ended up is, I believe, that could include the storms of life. I think there's a lot that is revealed about what we're building our lives on when we go through something difficult. When our family is struggling with a health issue, when we have um, an unsaved child that we're, we're struggling with, these are all things, I think, that show in some facet what our faith is being built on. And perhaps by storms during life, our faith is also being shaped by God's grace to persevere and to endure in that final judgment. I look to see what one of the church fathers from the fourth century said. This is John Chrysostom's words. He said, by rain, floods and winds here, Jesus is expressing metaphorically the calamities and afflictions that befall men. And then he lists some of them, such as false accusations, that's a storm, plots, bereavements, I don't think we use that word much, deaths, loss of friends, difficulties from strangers, all the ills in our life that one could mention, he believes, are these storms. But does it make a difference? I I think it does when you consider those who have been through trials in their life. I'm sure people are coming to your mind. Someone you know who has been through a trial, maybe many trials. People in this church actually come to my mind and have come through them looking to God in a way that shows that this whole experience, this storm has solidified their faith and has demonstrated they are fixed firmly on a solid rock. They're not being washed away with the difficulties that they're facing, but instead they're they're going deeper into that foundation and finding themselves firm through the storm. They struggle. We'll all struggle when we go through difficulties and storms and trials, but they won't get washed away in these difficult days or in the final day because what they're trusting in now is what is going to persevere. Continuing that, Quotation from the fourth century, but to none of these, these storms, does such a soul give way. And the cause is it is founded on the rock. And that brings up, I think, probably the most important question of this text is what is the rock? We see it at the end of verse 25. The reason the house did not fall is because it had been founded on the rock. This is really important. And actually, as I was studying, this actually opened up and unlocked the whole text for me. But let's listen carefully and not jump to the conclusion of what the rock is, because this section actually started with the word therefore. 
And if you're a reader of Scripture, you know that every time you see the word therefore, you should find out what it's there for. So if it started with therefore, it links it to something that came before. It links it to the earlier dichotomies that Christ was talking about. And essentially what Chad preached on last week about people who profess Jesus as Lord but are resting in something else. Maybe they're resting in a false profession. Maybe they're resting in this long list of works that have nothing to do with Christ's work. Jesus wanted us to still be thinking about these categories of Christian in name only that we learned about last week. Because now we have Jesus likening those who hear and obey him to those that are founded on something solid, something enduring, a rock. And I kind of want to walk through and look at a few key passages in Scripture that I think are going to, if it hasn't already, are going to open our eyes to what this concept of a rock is throughout redemptive history. So maybe jot this reference down. Exodus 17, verse 6. Exodus 17, 6. I will read it, but since we have several more references to jump to, you don't all need to turn there. This is when Moses was instructed in the wilderness. He was leading the people of Israel. They were wandering. They were thirsty. And in verse 6, the Lord tells Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Essentially, the water that came out of this rock is what saved the people of Israel from dying of thirst. It was their life source when the rock was struck. There are many places that the psalmist frequently refers to a swamp that he was sinking in. And then he contrasts that with the rock that the Lord places him on. Psalm chapter 40 is one of my favorites. Maybe jot this reference down too if you have a pen. Psalm 40, I'll just look at the first two verses. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So in contrast to the the miry bog, the swamp he was in, God sets him onto a rock. Paul quickly draws connections between a rock. So now we're in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to read the first four verses to you. And he's connecting Israel and what they drank from in the wilderness and someone else. Listen carefully. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Two verses later in verse 6, we're told that these are patterns or these are types for us to learn from. Specifically, the rock in Israel's experience was that which gave them life-giving water when they obeyed God's instruction. And in much the same way, Christ, who was also struck, who was beaten, who was treated as less than human, like a rock, gave his life away as a sacrifice 
so that many could receive the life-giving mercy that came down from his cross. And this continues. You can go to other places in Scripture. Later in Matthew, Jesus takes the title of a stone that was rejected and becomes the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the building. Matthew 21:42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Peter picks up that theme in 1 Peter 2, which includes other Old Testament references, all alluding to Christ as a rock. So what are we to make of all this? To summarize, and maybe I took that farther than needed, maybe you caught it on the first one, but Jesus is the rock. That's the announcement of our text that I I think we must not miss This reference to the rock that the wise build their lives on is pointing us forward to the good news of Jesus, crucified and risen for disobedient sinners. The point is that simple, but I wanted you to see it throughout your Bibles. Jesus himself was giving this well-read audience a word picture of what they were to build, what they were to found and settle their lives on, And by using the symbol of a rock, he was clearly pointing to himself. This was not asking them to just try harder. He didn't say in Matthew 7, those who hear my word and do it are working really hard at it. But those who hear my word and don't do it are just a bunch of lazy bums. No, he doesn't point to their efforts. He points to what they built on. He points to himself as the one to build your life on, to endure to the end. Building their lives around the only one who kept every command, kept every command, fulfilled the entire law, remember, and could also enable their obedience. So it's not that we just don't have to do anything at all because Christ has done it all for us. No, we are still called to live lives of obedience. We're called to live lives of holiness, but we're empowered to do that through the Savior that we're founded on. This is the Jesus we must submit to, build our entire lives into his doctrine and his teachings. During our text talk on Thursday, Tim brought up, I thought, a fitting analogy. This isn't just setting up our tent on a rock. You ever done tent camping? I think there's stakes that you kind of hammer into the ground, about six inches long. If you just put your tent on a rock, first of all, you're not going to be able to get those stakes in very deep, probably. Also, the wind, the rain is just going to come, probably push you right off that rock. So this isn't like founding our lives on Jesus, like we're going on an overnight camp out. No, this is sinking our foundations deeply into him, the only thing that is going to last through life and eternity, unshaken by the strongest of storms. So if we were to finish our song. So build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I won't finish it. But actually, for a children's song, that's at least going as far as it goes. That's actually decent theology because that's what the text is pointing us to. It's pointing us to founding and building our lives on a person. let's talk about what that means. 
how do we build our lives on Jesus? Because I think you could go through churches across America and ask people, what are you building your life on? They say, I'm here, obviously. It's Jesus. Well, we see from this text, it's much more than hearing Christ's teaching. So I have, in our closing minutes, I have five points. These are five truths that I want us to consider in application. The first way I believe we should apply this parable is by recognizing everyone who hears Jesus' words is responsible for them. Everyone who hears Jesus' words is responsible for them. Remember, both groups of people hear, but only one obeys. What do you typically do with the words you hear on Sunday? Or maybe the words that you read in your Bible during your own personal worship. Can you remember what you read two days ago in Scripture? Last week, can you remember what you heard over the last couple of weeks of preaching? John Stott says, in applying this teaching to ourselves, this is so true, we need to consider that the Bible is a dangerous book to read. The Bible is a dangerous book to read. Why, you ask? Because it lays on us the serious responsibility of ensuring that we know that what we know is translated into what we do. If we were okay just by acquiring information, then it would be fine if our whole job is just to sit through church services, read books, learn the information, and we're good now. That's clearly not the case, though, from what Christ is teaching. So what should we do? We know this is difficult. We know this is dangerous to sit through sermons and then do nothing to put it into practice. So I want to get practical here. A few basic principles begin by doing what Christ started the Sermon on the Mount with. Begin by seeking to become a spiritual beggar. Someone who recognizes their dependence on another for, for everything. Don't come into a message thinking that you already understand this. You've got it all figured out. I guess the other principle is closely connected to that from Isaiah 66, verse 2. Remember the one to whom God looks, the one who is contrite and trembles at his word. Let's be very cautious about having a flippant attitude to the hearing of God's word, whether it's reading it open on our lap on a Thursday morning or coming to hear it preached on a Sunday. So getting even more practical, I have a few suggestions, and actually these are really similar to the ones that those of you who got the list not book have. I found these helpful. As a church, we must, and I'm mostly just going to read these. So maybe a lot of the meditation and thinking about this is going to have to happen um, later today or this week. The first one is to listen expectantly. Listen expectantly. Cultivate the expectation that as the preacher opens his mouth, God is about to speak. Do we do that? When the person preaching the word is about to open his mouth, God is about to speak. Because the words of the person preaching, as far as they are faithful to Scripture, are what God wants to say to you. Second, listen attentively. 
Since God himself addresses us in preaching, be careful not to let our minds wander. Maybe you're a person that taking notes would be a good way to help you avoid daydreaming or to stay with the message. The third one is to listen carefully. What if not everything the preacher says can be established from Scripture? I think that's, that's definitely possible in a church like ours. It's possible in my message today. I would want people to be listening carefully. Otherwise, we might tend to accept everything rather than filtering it through the words of Scripture and being discerning. So we have listen expectantly, attentively, carefully. The fourth is humbly. Before listening to a sermon, we should prepare ourselves that what we are doing and what we are believing may not be right. How many times do we go into messages thinking, what I'm already doing and believing just might be wrong and I may need to have it corrected by God during this message? No, usually I think we go in thinking, yeah, I struggle, but I've pretty much got it figured out. It's working for me. So show me something I don't know out of the Bible. We need to be coming into messages humbly, realizing that our loving Heavenly Father may want to bring up things in our lives that he wants to change, that what we currently love might be wrong, that what we currently think might be wrong, and being prepared to be humbly accepting the correction of God. We also need to listen, number five, frequently. So I can say I got this message from someone else, but it's so true. We need to be frequently listening to live messages at our local church. I guess since you're here, I'm preaching to the choir, but this is an important point. Church isn't like an annual physical, something you go to occasionally to get checked up and make sure you're okay. No, it's like a consistent diet that you need to be regularly under the preaching of God's word. And number six, listen responsibly. This is really what this passage is about. When God speaks, he demands a response. It may be an intellectual change. It may be an emotional change, a practical, or all of the above. So as he warns, as he comforts and encourages and convicts, he wants us to change from one degree of glory to the next. God is much less interested with what we know than we are. I think we're very concerned with what we know. Do do I know the right things? Do I have the right information? Yes, God is interested in that, but I believe he's more interested in what we do with what we know. I believe we see that by this text today. So that was everyone who hears Jesus' words is responsible for them. My second major point of application, you haven't really learned something until you've put it into practice. This is just like James when we were studying that. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. It applies in school. You don't know how to do algebra until you can actually find X consistently. You can't just understand the steps. You have to actually be able to do it. You don't know how to drive a car until you actually get behind the wheel and make it go somewhere, hopefully where you intended. Our almost five-year-old daughter, Ellie, taught me just recently, today, taught me this principle in a practical way. So bear with me as I tell a very brief story. 
She is a self-proclaimed expert in everything animals. So if you think you know about animals, she may correct you and say she knows something. You don't. But especially bears. She was telling me just today she knows polar bears and other kind of bears, and she knows a lot about bears. And I asked her how, and she said she went to the zoo. So if you go to the zoo, you can learn about bears. But being beyond just knowing where bears live, what they eat, those kind of things, she has perfected how bears move. So she can do a bear crawl like no one I've ever seen in my life. Don't do it today. Okay. But she was showing me again this morning. I think she can run on all fours about as fast as she can run on two legs, which just blows my mind. So this is hands and feet kind of on a, a bear-style run. So to move the illustration along, I was on a run this morning, starting to get tired. I wasn't on a run nearly as long as Jennifer was. I was on a short run this morning, starting to get tired, and there was someone walking their dog on the sidewalk. And I think that's the appropriate place to walk the dog, so it's not, it's not her fault. But I started to go around the dog walker and, and veered a little wide, not wanting to disturb the dog. And what I didn't see was, as I was cutting into the grass, there was a root that was partially concealed by the grass. And so I tripped. And, you know, when you trip, when you're running or doing something, everything on that point on is just instinct. So instinctively, my hands come up. I'm going to, you know, catch myself on my hands. But this is where it really kind of got strange, because I landed on my hands doing this nosedive, landed on my hands, but as soon as my hands hit, I'm like, this isn't going to go well, because I'm still going to keep falling forward, and my face is going to end up, you know, either on the pavement or the grass. So somehow, like, mid-stride, I decided to start a bear crawl. So there I am, running down the sidewalk on all fours, thinking this is working pretty well. This might actually work. Yeah, this is working. And then slowed down enough to push myself back up. I felt like it had been pretty graceful, but the the dog walker asked me, are you okay? So that kind of told me it probably didn't go as well as I thought it did. The point, if, if there really is one at this point, is that my daughter practices this style of running regularly. She runs around in all fours around the house. She actually never learned to crawl on her hands and knees. She, I think, skipped right to all fours. Um, so she does this regularly. She knows how to run like a bear because she does it. I, on the other hand, am very sore after having done this, even though I didn't actually make contact with the ground other than my hands and feet. But I'm going to need quite a bit more experience before being able to say I know how to do a legitimate bear crawl down the street. The point, we need to do something before we can say we really know it or believe it. We need to put it into practice. The best way to tell if we're listening to preaching is by the way we live. And I can say as someone who preaches occasionally here, it's encouraging that people listen to my sermons. It's encouraging that people attentively listening to what I say. But how much more encouraging to see a church that puts that into practice. That's not just hearing but there's change, and they're living the sermon with their lives. My third application point, everyone builds their lives on something. And I don't believe people purposely go out and build their life on sand. I think they believe that what they're building their life on is something 
legitimate, something that's going to last. The gospel announcement in this text is good news only for those who prepare for the storm by looking to Jesus. But I don't think that's most people. Even religious people tend to build their lives on something else. The default is to build it on good things, a good career, secure finances, nice vacations, an early retirement, passing something on to your kids, leaving the world better than you left it. None of these are wrong or bad things in themselves, but none of them are going to last through the storms of life if Christ isn't the true foundation of the house you're building. Storms then reveal what we're building on, my fourth application point. Storms will reveal what we're building on. The wise and foolish alike must weather the storm. So building on a rock doesn't keep the rain off, doesn't keep us dry, doesn't keep us from the floodwaters rising. But in clinging to the righteous one, we are saved through the storm. What is the latest storm in your life? Think through that for just just a minute as we wrap up. What is the latest storm in your life? And what do you find yourself clinging to during this storm? Maybe it's a financial struggle, a health diagnosis, a relationship that's falling apart, satanic attacks, any, any other storm. And what is it revealing about your true foundation? In my last application before we close, everyone without a stable foundation will end in tragic collapse. Everyone. The text is clear in Matthew 7. Everyone who hears but does not do is like a person building on sand. When the storm comes, great will be the fall of that house. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The British pastor who wrote this text did so based on Christ's parable from Matthew 7. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing these words together. But let's meditate on them briefly in light of Christ's message. One of the other stanzas reads, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So Jesus closed the greatest sermon ever preached with a great crash. This, this is a sobering word, a picture of tragic destruction for those who, who follow Christ from a distance, a safe distance, close enough to hear him, maybe even agreeing with the words, but not seeking to obey and follow in faith. So I'll repeat how I started. The only safe and the only secure place for a person is following Jesus in obedience. Are you ready for life storms by being founded firmly on the rock that is Christ, the only thing that is going to stand through every storm?
Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would use your message in our lives as you desire. I pray that those who need the sober message of a house bound for collapse would would run to you, God. I pray that they would run to you and find in your son and in his wounds everything they need to stand on a firm foundation. And for those who already have planted their lives firmly on Jesus, the one who died and rose again, those who are trusting in him fully, I pray that they too would find encouragement today. That they would find encouragement that there is a solid rock under them despite everything going around in their life, despite the storm raining down on them and the winds and the flood, that they have a rock that is secure and solid and steadfast. And I pray that for all of us, we would grow in our ability to hear you speak, God, and then respond to it. So however you want us to respond today, may we be open to it. May we seek you. May we trust that your way is best, Father. In the name of Jesus, we ask it all. Amen.